welcome. You found the People Chattanooga podcast. I'm your host, Luke Swab. Today, I have a conversation with Andrea Hassler. She is the executive director of the SCC. That's a Southeastern Climbers Coalition. And uh, she is a big wall climber. Um, she's rafted the Grand Canyon, uh, big traveler. She's, she's one of those people that is camped on the side of a rock face in a hammock, um, you know, a couple hundred feet above the ground, which is insane. And we have a conversation about what she does for the SCC as far as um, getting new climbing areas, land access, uh, we, maintenance, um, anti-erosion, uh, getting rid of graffiti on rocks, which is fascinating. That part's really cool. Um, and the new Walden Ridge project that's happening over in Signal Mountain. So that's, that's good stuff. Um, without further ado, here is my conversation with Andrea Hassler. Okay, and we're live. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm with Andrea Hassler today from the SEC. Yep. And what is SEC? The Southeastern Climbers Coalition. We're a nonprofit 501c3 that works to preserve access to climbing in the Southeast. What's your title there? I'm the executive director. Is that as high up as it gets? Uh, we have a board of directors. It's all volunteer, but in the staff front, then yeah, that's cool. it. How did you get that? I applied. They hired me. <laughs> is, it, is this a paid job? It is. Oh, okay. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it's a full-time position. The former executive director was Cody Roney, um, and she was in the position for five years, and she was a development director for a couple of years before that um, and a volunteer with the organization for a while before that. And she's now the executive director at Lula Lake Land Trust. And um, so she left her position in January of last year. And I applied, I worked part-time with them under the interim executive director, Angie Langevin, filling in for her previous position as the stewardship director. Um, yeah. And then I started, I was hired and I started in May of last year. Nice. Mm -hmm. Is that why you moved to Chattanooga or were you already living here? It's a big part of why I moved to Chattanooga. I technically moved here before, but I was on the road for about two years, three years, um, traveling around and my work brought me to Chattanooga a couple of times throughout that th time period. So I'd been in Chattanooga for like two to four months a year for the past couple of years working with the access fund. And then, um, you know, I knew the position was opening up and I applied and I came to help out during the interim time. Um, and then, yeah, once I got the job, I found a place to live. What's, what's the access fund? The Access Fund is the National Climbing Advocacy Organization. Okay. So they're based out of Boulder, but they have offices out throughout the country. They actually have one here in the Southeast. Uh, Zach Leshue is the Southeast Regional uh, Director of the Access Fund, and he's in um, Sonoma as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so with them, I was a conservation specialist. So me and my friend lived in a Jeep and traveled the country for 10 months out of the year, going to different climbing areas throughout the country. And we would work with local organizations like the SCC or land managers like the park service or the forest service and do climbing area restoration stewardship projects. Um, yeah. So working with volunteers, doing trail work or, um, working in staging areas or removing graffiti, picking up trash, kind of whatever was needed. And how do you remove graffiti? I've always wondered. Yeah. It's a substance called elephant snot is kind of the most, yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you get it in big buckets and it's super toxic. 
Um, <laughs> so you usually wear like gloves and goggles and sometimes hazmat suits. Um, actually, I think those protective face shields that are coming out now for yeah. healthcare workers would be really beneficial in the world of graffiti removal. Um, but if it's not, it's biodegradable actually, and it's um, approved to use and um, on public land. So a lot of the Forest Service, Park Service, they'll all use it as well if yeah. they're hip to it. Kind of the old way was painting over graffiti. Yeah. So sometimes with, with someone else's name, like a new name. Or yeah, something. that or like the land manager. You know, if there was like a, a public space and you know the park ranger saw graffiti, they would go and just get like paint paint over it. Oh, it's the same color as the rock. Then somebody would just come and do graffiti over top of that, yeah. and then you would have like almost like a palimpsest, just like layers of graffiti and paint and graffiti and paint and graffiti and paint. Yeah, like all those rocks, like colleges, you know, <laughs> most colleges have that one rock. Yes. They just, each class paints it. Right, It turns yeah. into this like layer, this lollipop rock mm-hmm. of layers and layers. Mm-hmm. So then when you're going to remove it, it's way harder to do that than to just remove it to begin with. With the elf? With it's the elf, not, it's not. Yeah. yeah. So you go in and you get, um, the elephant's not like wire brushes and you scrub it over the graffiti and you let it sit for half an hour or so. And then you come back with a pressure washer and scrubbers and then you remove it. Um, it kind of depends. There's some variation in the type of rock that you're doing out on. So if it's a softer rock, doesn't, you know, or if it's a harder rock like granite, it just kind of has some nuances yeah. in it. Does it um, get it all off? Can you tell? Can yeah. you just kind of see us? Mm-hmm. A scar? No, it gets it all off, and you can't even tell it was painted before? Again, kind of depends, but if successful, yes, you can completely remove it, and um, you won't see it there anymore. Now, what you might see is if the rock had a lot of lichen and growth on it, you'll see where you scrubbed, and there isn't that lichen and growth, so it'll just be a blank spot on the rock. Yeah. And sometimes there will be a light shadow. So you'll remove most of it, but there might be like little dots within the crevices of the rock. So from a distance, it just looks like a shadow of it. Is is graffitiing rocks becoming less of a thing people do? Is it becoming less common? Well, the idea of removing it is that it denormalizes it. Mm -hmm. You know, when something's there, just like when there's trash in an area on the ground, you're more likely to throw trash on the ground. Yeah. Psychologically speaking, not because you're, you know good people might not do that right but psychologically speaking if a room is messy you're more likely to leave it messy so if there's graffiti on the rocks you're more likely to see more graffiti so removing it kind of sets the tone that this is not a place that has graffiti in it yeah um so you know urban areas particularly climbing areas near urban areas those tend to see more graffiti um than you know out in the cut but i yeah so i don't know if there's more or less graffiti in the world because I've only been to climbing areas to remove it. Yeah. So um, I'm sure there's other places. In a way, I, I like graffiti. Um, I think in some places it's really appropriate. I think it's really cool. I think there's a lot of amazing graffiti artists out there. It's just in natural places, you know, kind of want to keep it natural. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the um, graffiti? I think it's, oh, you know the Far Enough Trail where that is in St. Elmo? It's a newer bouldering area up old Wahatchee. Oh yeah, sure. At the uh-huh. at the bottom parking lot, there's a big tall boulder. Oh yeah, like where those picnic tables are. Yes. Yeah. And and there's one spot on the boulder. It says "Don't climb this rock" or something like in mm-hmm. graffiti. It's just painted on there. It says "Don't climb this rock." Something to the effect of that. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen that. I think I'm gonna have to go check that out. Yeah, we'll have to get some elephant snot. Yeah, and go remove it. Yeah, how yeah. is how is it biodegradable if it's so gnarly? I'm not exactly sure on that 
component either. I just know that it's safe enough to use <laughs> in wild spaces. Perfect. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it's got to be better than the paint. Right. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, yeah, graffiti. Um, okay, so you've had this job for a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What if some... Um, I don't know. What were some of your favorite projects you've done in the last year? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, there have been a handful of them. Should we? Were you involved with Denny yeah. Cove? Yeah, I was actually going to start with that. Yeah, I was. So when I started, one of the projects I worked on early on with when I was with the Access Fund, working alongside SCC, was at Denny Cove, and so it was two thousand eighteen. I worked with my work partner, Annabelle, and Angie from SEC, and we did some staging area work at the Buffet Wall. Um, So the Buffet Wall is kind of like big, iconic, steep, um, you know, 5'11 up sport climbing at Denny Cove. Um, Kind of one of the most visually aesthetic walls, particularly in that climbing area. Um, And so at the base of it, is just layers of shale rock. So it's just crumbling away by people's feet. Oftentimes when we're doing climbing access and area stabilization work, it's because there used to be vegetation there and plants and roots and trees holding the soil in place. And when people come in, we've trampled that in order to occupy that space or to access it or to belay, stand around, eat sandwiches and watch people climb, whatever it is that we're doing there. Um, and so once that, once that vegetation has been lost, the soil is exposed. And then when it rains or as we're walking around more, we see erosion and we see soil loss. Um, with soil loss, we then see tree roots exposed and we can see tree loss. And then it kind of starts this unfolding of the habitat, right? Compromises it or degrades the habitat. Um, so one of the things that we try to do is stabilize that so that we don't continue to see the soil loss, so we can protect the trees that exist there and all of the critters that survive off of the plants and trees and everything in that system. So at Denny, it's interesting because the wall is steep enough that it doesn't see the erosion from rain. It's almost purely foot traffic. Um, and it's mostly rock. Um, but over time, it's just become, you know, it's all crumbling away. What's also interesting about Denny is that it's a relatively new climbing area in that SEC secured with a handful of partners like the Access Fund, the Conservation Fund, the Lindhurst Foundation, Riverview, the State Parks, Land Trust of Tennessee, a bunch of different partner organizations came together to secure Denny Cove. And... or SEC worked with the state parks to build access to the climbing area. And people had climbed there before and began developing the routes there. But now that it's open to the public, it's almost like it's this new resource. And so we're going in and we're able to foresee what could happen 10, 20, 30 years from now because of what we've seen in climbing areas that have been around for 10, 20, 30 years and start putting in infrastructure so that we can have sustainable access, so that we won't eventually have to come in and fix huge gullies. Um, so, so what do you do to prevent erosion? Mm-hmm. So what we started with when we first worked at Denny was putting in retaining walls. <clears throat> and those retaining walls are 
huge blocks of rock um, that at the buffet wall, we kind of work just to set a foundation at the base of what's essentially the scree or small rocks crumbling from the base of the main wall. Um, so then we could have access trails going across. And then from that, we could build kind of staircases that are sustainable that go up to the base of the cliff. So then we can kind of protect the areas around it, around kind of the, so you have like a one trail going through and then spurs going off of that to get to the climbs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the majority of what we're doing when we're, you know, preventing erosion at the base of climbing areas. It's like retaining walls and rock staircases to get up to the climb. How do you move all the rocks? So we have rock carrying devices or rock RCDs, also known as rock slings, and then um, rock bars that they're just like six to eight foot. Just a metal chunk of metal. Yeah. yeah. It's just a <laughs> heavy spear. Yeah. And um, we use those to, the bars in conjunction with the slings, um, in conjunction with people to carry the rocks. And then once they're, you know, you kind of use whatever tools to make a bed for the rock to be placed in because um, you want it to be as stable as possible. Um, and then you use those rock bars again to manipulate the rock because it's typically too big to just pick up and move. Yeah. Um, so then you get a couple of people or depending on the size of the rock up to four people with the rock bars at different corners, just kind of like pushing and lifting and pulling and twisting it around until you get it set. And this is all manual labor, no machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes we will use a drill to split stone. Okay. Um, and then with that, we're looking at a big rock that's maybe too big to carry or too big to maneuver. Um, and then you'll drill a set of holes through the middle of it and then use feathers and wedges that are just like two metal wedges or feathers that go into it. And then you drive a wedge through the middle of it. Um, and then you do that throughout the rock and you split it in half. Um, so yeah, so you could use the mechanized drill. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. At least you can use, it's not a hand drill. It's a mech. It's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Usually. I mean, I guess if you were doing that work in wilderness areas, then you'd have to use a hand drill. Yeah. Um, is that a rule? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually just last year, the access fund worked with, um, I think it was with the department of interior, but to allow mechanized drilling to replace hardware in wilderness areas. To replace it. Yeah. So it's still not setting new. Still not new development. But what's, why, what, what's the reason for that? Um, so the mandate, if you will, um, for wilderness, the Wilderness Act, is to preserve places that are untrammeled by man. That's one snippet from it. But it's kind of the essence of wilderness is this idea of untrammeled, meaning that there's no signs or direct influence of humans when you're in wilderness areas. So um, that categorically excludes machines. So you often can't bike through wilderness areas, but you could ride a horse. Um, You can't, yeah, use power drills, power equipment um, in wilderness areas. Hmm. So it's like foot traffic only. Um, you know, you won't see structures, you won't see any new structures built in wilderness areas, new buildings, anything like that, so that you can kind of preserve and have this wild like experience kind of like our forefathers saw it. Yeah. Um, there are exclusions though. So for firefighting, you can get an exclusion to use chainsaws 
in wilderness areas, but often, but it's kind of a high level. Like they'll often want fires to burn through wilderness. Yeah. Um, just to help restore the natural state and it's good for the soil and it's good for the health of the ecosystem. Um, but sometimes they're, you know, using whatever decision-making matrix it may call for chainsaw work. Yeah. But yeah. like, um, Linville Gorge, uh, is in a wilderness area. So they actually have a trail crew that are all trained in cross cross cut saws. So they have like the big saws that two men go back and forth or women go back and forth. And, um, that's how they clear down trees, which is more time and labor intensive, but it's in the essence of wilderness. In the essence of wilderness. Mm-hmm. Okay. It reminds me a little bit of maybe this is horrible comparison, but, um, the Amish people, how they have their like classic uh-huh. rules and they, yeah. they just want it classic, more simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just kind of like down to the essence. So, I think it's cool. Yeah. You know, it's like nice to be out in those places. And, and especially you're not hearing chainsaws, you know. Right. So yes. like that is, it's it's also like a noise pollution thing. Yeah, because there's, <clears throat> there's something also with flight paths. Um, there's like a distance or a perimeter of airspace that you have to travel around wilderness areas. No kidding. Yeah. There's something to it. I, I don't know exactly what the, distances but yeah so you could see planes i have seen planes in wilderness areas but like you wouldn't see low flying planes and um that kind of stuff well that's pretty cool that's Mm -hmm. that's the one thing you notice when you get as remote as you can Mm -hmm. um it's quiet you think you got you think you made it and then all of a sudden you hear this you just see this plane and you hear this plane and you're just like Mm. yeah and it's also um like drones are definitely banned in wilderness areas and in most parks as well um, I'm seeing for that reason, I'm seeing way more don't fly drone here signs mm-hmm. everywhere I go. Yeah. 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 Because they kind of took off and just like with anything, if you don't really see it coming, you don't know how big a deal it is. And all of a sudden you see them everywhere. Yeah. You know, land managers have kind of started to react, but, um, you know, drone footage is amazing. It is. Hearing drones is not. I know. <laughs> yeah, so, I but you can get permits for drones as well. So like when Alex Honnold climbed El Cap, mm-hmm. you know, they got special permits to commercial permits, sure. um, which they pay for because they were going to make money off of a public resource. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm pretty sure they used drones in some sections there. So, you know, drones are not permitted, but you can get commercial use permits to use them. Um, on a limited basis. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a time and place for most everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Except, except for chainsaws, unless well, if there's a forest fire. Yeah. That, I. You know, I've actually been using. We were gifted a chainsaw, and you know, it's been in need because of all the winter storms. Yeah. Um. So you know, it's definitely way better than going out with loppers and a handsaw. Yeah, <laughs> and I I personally have an electric chainsaw. Oh, and nice. um okay. it's it's quiet yeah and it's just nice for quick little jobs yeah obviously mm-hmm. it's not good if you want to clear land but it's mm-hmm. um it's pretty cool yeah i should look into that i was talking to somebody randy from wild trails he oh was yeah that he has a electric chainsaw that he uses and he loves it yeah um i've never worked with one so yeah they're not as powerful but they mm-hmm. they i mean they're more powerful than than just hand saw so sure. <laughs> yeah yeah Totally. So they're pretty good. Are they pretty light too? Uh, I probably a little lighter. 
Mm. Yeah, a little lighter, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Not quite as tough, <laughs> but I mean, the batteries are good. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've been able to work half a day with just four batteries that I have and okay. clear a bunch of stuff. Nice. Yeah, they're pretty okay. good. Yeah, I should check into that. Yeah. Okay. Was, so, Denny Cove, was, mm-hmm. um, you're getting the the tra- the, the stabilization mm-hmm. to stop erosion. Was that private land before? It was. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know this story and how it went from private to mm-hmm. how how um, the SEC bought it? I could give like the broad overview of the story, but because I wasn't here, yeah, there's going to be some holes in it. But okay. I know, um, you know, there were a few key players like Cody Averbeck and Dave Wilson and Edward Yates, and a, a lot of those guys had found the cliff. And I think that Cody in particular was one of the individuals who really pulled together multiple different people he called up sec and the access fund and different people and said hey let's talk about gaining access to this climbing area um you know john DeRoe and chad weichel were also part of those early conversations chad's still on our board today um chad used to be with rock creek outfitters and is now with the land trust for tennessee um and john DeRoe is one of our area reps and um huge involvement in sec over the years and sec supporter so they all kind of started having these conversations about what it would look like to preserve that cliff. Up until Denny, the largest acquisition the SEC had made was, I think, Hospital Boulders, which is 40 acres. And Denny was 670 That's a lot acres. of land. Yeah. So um, they had the foresight to know that it was going to take more than just, you know, throwing a keg party every once in a while to get donations from climbers to pay for Denny, which is what we've been doing and been successful at doing for the past 26 years. The keg party model has been working. Yeah. The, we, we do an annual fundraiser called BYOB yeah. by your own Boulder field. Oh, cool. Um, so I think it's been running for nine years, eight years now. Um, and so that fundraiser was started. Um, yeah, that long ago to, um, raise money for buying climbing areas for buying hospital boulders and a few others. Um, and so, but, you know, with, with Denny, it was so big and so expensive. I think it was, if not past just over a million, it was right around it. Um, and so they kind of started having these conversations and um, got other land conservation organizations on board, like Land Trust for Tennessee and the Conservation Fund, Open Space Institute, um, and local foundations, Lynnhurst and Riverview, that support conservation acquisitions and land protection in the greater Chattanooga area, Um, and identified and worked with the Tennessee State Parks to then have what we call a private to public transfer. So we acquired it as a private entity, and then the state parks acquired it from us. Yeah, you gave gave it away, so they... mm -hmm will do the maintenance on is that why mm-hmm. so they yeah. manage it so it's now part of the south cumberland state park mm-hmm. system um and so during that time sec received some grants from patagonia some support from local climbing gyms high point and stone summit um and i'm sure many others i'm, I'm sure i'm leaving people out like the lists are so long of how many people really supported this project so if you're listening to this and i left you out i'm sorry <laughs> um but i know that you were on our signage at the trailhead <laughs> yeah um and this was all 2016 was when the final acquisition was made and sec took out a final 
loan from the access fund. So the access fund has um, a couple of things. They do a lot, but one thing they do is a conservation grants program, which we got a grant from them for some of the initial trail building and parking lot projects. Um, And they also do a conservation loan program. And that loan program is to, is for organizations like us that want to buy land, don't have the cash flow to do it. We get a loan. It's low interest long-term from the access fund so that we can then fundraise over years to pay it off so that money access fund has money readily available for land acquisitions to preserve climbing. Um, and so we did that and the loan that we got from them when it was all said and done was about 150,000. And so we've been fundraising since then and we're about to write our final check when everything kind of shut down this year. Uh, you need one more keg party. Yeah, we need one, we need one more final keg party. Um, but access fund's been great. They, um, dropped the interest on the loan and they extended the deadline, um, six more months for, for that, um, final payment. So we're hopeful that we'll pay that off in January of 2021. Really cool. Yeah. So how, that'd be great. So, I mean, you found the land um, mm-hmm. and, the, and the climbing area, but how how do you go about convincing the land or, owner that they want to sell their land to you? You know, again, I wasn't there for those conversations, but I'm sure there were many of them. Um yeah, I'm not sure if I would really be the best person to speak to you about that, okay. but, I, but I would That's love fine. to put you in touch with some people who could talk to those um, early conversations. Yeah. Oftentimes what I've seen um, is individuals that establish a personal relation with the land man or the landowner and are just respectful yeah. and kind and nice and say, hey, we want to climb here. What do we have to do? Can we help you out? Can we help you take care of this land? Um, and then at some point in time, if the landowner is interested in selling, um, maybe they'll be convinced by the thought of that land being preserved um, in perpetuity forever. Um, or maybe they just aren't using the land and they just happen to have it. And yeah, that sounds great to have it as a state park. There's property values that benefit from being adjacent to a state park and mm-hmm. protected land. Um, so there's economic value to it. Um there's also s- local businesses benefit from um, tourism of people coming to visit the state parks or climbing or trails. And we see that all throughout the country. So there's definitely um, value and benefit, not just in protecting the land for the land's sake and for the health of the ecosystem, right? There's a whole spectrum. There's also, you know, benefit to the local community of having that protected space and hiking trails and, um, open space there's benefit to the water and the air um and then there's also economic benefit to local businesses and property values all that kind of stuff yeah so it's, it's a bunch of win-win-win situations yeah for sure when these places get developed mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah um do you have any new spots on your radar that you're that's in the background that you're yeah um you know right now we're working on a few um stewardship and development projects. One of them is in Chattanooga Mm -hmm. and it's already protected, but we're working to establish it to become a County park. It's called the Walden Ridge nature park. Oh yeah. On the W road. Mm -hmm. Oh good. Tell me, but I'm really interested in that project. Yeah. I'd love to tell you about it. So, um, a few years ago, the land was donated to the North Chickamauga Creek Conservancy and 
they're another local nonprofit organization that, um, you know, does a lot of great things, particularly to protect watersheds and, um, boating access and hiking access. And, um, around that time, a partnership was formed between Northchick, Sorba Chattanooga, the Land Trust for Tennessee, who holds an easement on the property. I mean, easement is basically a way to protect the land, no matter who owns it. Um, placing an easement on it, you kind of set out the land will stay like this forever yeah, with no major alterations under these parameters. It's restriction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even, you know, if somebody owns a farm and they put an easement on it and their kids now own the farm or their kids sell the farm to somebody else, the easement stands as is. Um, and so, yeah, so North Check, Soraba, Land Trust for Tennessee, Access Fund, and SEC all came together to protect this park area and devised this amazing plan of having downhill mountain biking trails and bouldering access and hiking and running trails. And that the trail or that the area would then be given and managed by Hamilton County Mm -hmm. Parks and Recreation. So all of those people have been working together over the past couple of years to establish this. And Sorba got an RTP grant, which is Recreational Trails Program. It's a national program to create recreational trails um, to establish the downhill mountain biking trails. And we've had several other funders, again, Lindhurst Riverview and REI has um, supported the project and Rock Creek has supported the project, many other funders over the past couple of years um, to establish access What's happened so far is we've, um, IMBA, which is the International Mountain Biking Association, has created a master plan for the trail system. This is a huge area. I mean, you look at it on a map, it's like, oh, okay, it's like a big square on the side of Walden Ridge and, you know, on the other side of Signal Mountain up from the Mountain Creek neighborhood. And you go out there and it's massive. Have you hiked the whole thing? No. I've tried. I mean, I've hiked through you know, from one end to the other, from top to bottom, kind of from all of the different corners, but it's a lot of land to cover. Um, it's awesome. And there's a couple of little creeks on it. Mm-hmm. And then, so kind of like the top right boulder or top right corner of the property has the majority of the boulders on it. And then I don't know, there's maybe a thousand foot elevation gate, maybe could be corrected on that. I'll have to look back at the master plan. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like seven or eight. Seven. Or, okay. I think. Yeah. I don't think it's quite a thousand. Okay. So yeah. So kind of from top to bottom on the property. So the way that Imba has laid out the master plan is there's from the top parking lot, there's some entrance trails and there'll be a little kind of bike park type practice skills park at the top for mountain biking. And then some trails that go out. And then from that, there'll be mountain biking trails that drop down. Or those trails that keep on going out, keep on going to the boulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as those trails drop down, there's a couple of different options for climbing back up. So you could do loops or whatever. Or a mountain biker could set it up as a shuttle, drop the bikes off at the top, drop a car at the bottom, um, and then drop in from there. Yeah, that's the cool part. Is mm-hmm. So there is going to be access from top and bottom. So the bottom access um, is complex. my PSA moment. That okay. we're working on. Okay. Um, there are a few different options for bottom access, but um, currently there's an opportunity um, to extend the park at the bottom of what is currently the park boundary. So North Chick has been working with the 
landowners adjacent to the Walden Ridge property, which is owned by a local developer, Pratt Developers, and um, or Pratt Home Builders, I think is their yeah. full name. Um, they own the quarry property, and um, the local neighbors really wanted to see that land protected and not built upon. And so Norchick has kind of been working as a liaison between those two groups, the Mountain Creek residents and Pratt, um, and our kind of coalition, um, working on the park project to find something that could be mutually beneficial for everybody. And currently there's a proposal on the table to, for Pratt to donate a huge section of the land that they own adjacent to the park. Um, it would protect this huge, beautiful post oak tree, um, all of the green states kind of at the foot of the ridge. So there could be picnic tables and, um, you know, kind of biking trails, connections to greenway trails. So somebody could bike from theoretically here in downtown Chattanooga to Walden Ridge on protected greenway trails. Um, and so if that were to happen, it would create a few other options for where those mountain bike trails could end at the bottom of the park. There's some other options that wouldn't require that um, acquisition, but obviously kind of like ending at a park, like a proper county park um, would be one of those options for, you know, so you could like have a picnic. That would be great. You know, you could do some disc golf and run your shuttle and come back down and finish doing disc golf. I don't know. Um, And then, you know, it, it also creates such an amazing opportunity for the park because it goes from downhill mountain biking, bouldering, trail running, hiking, waterfall views, and expands it to picnicking and, um, you know, playing Frisbee and just hanging out kind of community park vibe. Yeah. Um, so we're really hopeful that that'll get through. There is a survey right now that we've put out and a little short video, um, that you can, people in our community can learn more about it. So that where can we see that survey in the, in the video? I think actually right now it's kind of living on our social media channels, um, where we've got links to it. Um, I'm not sure if we have an exact landing page for it, um, but I could send you the link, follow yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. But you could also see it, yeah, on um, if you're on the North Chick or the SEC Litserves. Also, the um, Chattanooga Times Free Press did an article a few days ago on this whole process and project. Um, and in that article, there's a link mm-hmm. to the um, short movie. It's like a minute and a half, um, and then to the survey. Okay. So the survey is still live. When, mm-hmm. when, when does the survey end? Good question. I don't know if we have an end time. Uh, We're hoping for a thousand responses. We're about halfway there right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what is a survey? It gives different options mm-hmm. and, and that's what you're talking to with Pratt builders. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because they want to build a bunch of single family homes mm-hmm. and the, and the other option is more apartments, less single family homes, mm-hmm. but then giving more acts, more land, donating it towards the Walden Ridge project. Exactly. Which would include this trophy or champion state tree. Yeah. The post oak tree. The post oak. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest, is that the biggest in Tennessee? I think so. Yeah. I think it's a champion right. tree. Yeah. Have you seen the tree? Yes. I haven't seen it. It's amazing. How big around is it if you hugged it? How many people? You know, I don't know. I haven't been up to the base of it because it's 
arms are so broad. Like, yeah. it goes out pretty big. Is, um, is it in the more in the bottom part, the flatter part of the land? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I want to check it out. Yeah, you should go check it out. Yeah, I love it's trees. Beautiful. So yeah, it's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Cool. So yeah, so those are the options. Yep. You laid okay. it out perfectly. Okay. So, yeah. So you can vote on two, one or two. Yeah. That's what it is. Exactly. See what see what people want, and you're hoping mm-hmm. for you're hoping for um, the more land being donated option, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so far you have around 500 likes or whatever. Yeah, 500 okay. or so, 550. It, when I checked yesterday, the so, other day. So if people. you get a thousand, is that when Pratt's like, okay, we'll we'll go this route, or it's it's a little more complicated because it's tied up in a lawsuit as well mm. between Pratt and the city okay. uh, over zoning issues yes. for that property. Um, so what we're hoping is just to gauge what the community wants and to share that information with um, regional planning, with city council, with um, just to kind of understand like, we think this is a great option um, for this area, for this community, for this yeah. park. Um, and, We'd like to know if that's what the community would like to see so that we can share that information and kind of help move it along. And do you know much about the lawsuit? Is the lawsuit something to the fact that the old golf course was zoned in a way that they could have a clubhouse and sell things? And since they bought it with that zoning, now they Mm -hmm. can build more dense? Is that something like that something along those lines yeah there was a rezoning that happened but then there's an argument that the zoning wasn't done in a way that was legit yeah so um and this is speaking i'm not an expert in, in we're, this we're not lawyers zoning. yeah no disclaimer. <laughs> disclaimer this is just for entertainment <laughs> um so so yeah, so there's some articles the on that. You that can, there are. You can look up yeah. and read about it. Yeah, I would suggest that for sure. Um, so, but it's complicated. The, it is extreme. Yeah, it's it's very complicated, and um, the hope is that this kind of new proposal plan would um, alleviate some of those pressures and tensions, mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know, what what the SEC right SEC. If I'm wearing like my SEC hat, what we would like to see is preserve protected and preserve access to the boulders. Yeah. Um, and having those additional connections creates more access. Um, so that's kind of our bias, right? Sure. Um, and as kind of wearing my community hat, I think that expanding a part and protecting more watershed and creating, um, further opportunities for people to access and enjoy open space is great for our health as individuals and as a community. So, Mm -hmm. And then um, Sor- Sorba's hat wants more mountain bike trails, right. which I love. <laughs> yeah. And then Trail Runner's hat wants more trails. Right. Yeah. So, and as a community member in the county, you might want more park acreage. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, right, it, nothing's perfect. No. Right? And, you know, I, I don't necessarily say I would love to see more land developed or more buildings or this mm-hmm. or that, right? But... Um, people need homes people and need homes. Um, people would like to live here and would um, maybe want to have their own space and whatever. Um, populations are growing yeah. um, everywhere, not just Chattanooga, um, but particularly in destination places where you have amazing access to the outdoors and you have a rich and thriving culture. Um, and, you know, we're seeing these places in higher and higher demand again throughout the country. I expect we'll probably see more of that as more places allow remote work, that people will have greater flexibility to be able to live where they want to play 
And, um, you know, Chattanooga is kind of on the rising tide of that movement. We've seen it and we've seen mature versions of that throughout Colorado, which is where I lived before I moved here. Um, we see mature versions of that in North Carolina, um, and throughout California, some of these other places that have really embraced outdoor recreation, um, as a strong component of their economies. And you start seeing industry, outdoor rec industries move to those places. And so you see an even further flourishing, um, of course, right now is such a weird time to be talking about economic flourishing, but um, I think, you know, so that to say, I I understand and empathize with individuals that don't want to see more development, right? Like that's, yeah, like seeing a place go from a grassy field in a forest to apartments or housing and additional traffic, those are real legitimate concerns. Um, watershed protection, those are real legitimate concerns, but um, all of those things, I believe, can be taken into consideration and managed in a way um, that is sustainable and mutually beneficial. I don't think that they're exclusive of one another. I think that uh, there's some middle ground that we can find to um, have great, amazing parks and also have sustainable places for people to live. Yeah, middle ground so, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how long have you um, had an interest in climbing? Where did this come from? Mm, okay, so I'm like one of those kids. I grew up in suburban Maryland outside mm-hmm. of, um, you know, D.C. metropolitan sprawl. Um, and we had woods behind my house. There were just woods. My parents didn't take me camping to do outdoorsy things. We would play in the creek because it was there. Um, and so I always, you know, I grew up doing sports. Um, Re- I regular sports. Yeah. Like ball yeah. sports, ball, field hockey, yeah. swimming, diving. I was a competitive diver actually for a long time and coached for a long time as well. Oh, that's super cool. Yes. Yeah, it, it was fun. Did you do that um, in college? I didn't end up doing any sports in college. Okay. Um, just music festivals. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> Different kind of sport. But, uh, but I did end up coaching diving in grad school. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, so I didn't compete at anything throughout college, but I like cliff diving still. Yeah. <laughs> if I can find a good spot. So, well, um, I know where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot around here. <laughs> I <know laughs> secret spots. Yeah. Cool. Um, so yeah, so I think like in my middle school, I have a faint memory of them putting a little bouldering wall in our weight room. Um, and I remember traversing it. So that's probably my earliest, like, this is rock climbing memory. Yeah. Um, and then when I was in college for like two different classes, we had to, we had to go to the climbing wall in the gym for like, I don't know, personal development type freshman seminar. Welcome to college, you know, find your inner strength yeah. kind of shit. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know if I can say that. It's fine. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, um, you know, I, so, so I kind of grew up in like unstructured outdoor exploration, right? Like my parents didn't take me like hiking and give me a backpacking pack and say, okay, we're yeah. going to go on this trail. And you weren't in the Boy Scouts. I did Girl Scouts, but it was like baking cookies and camping uh, in a girl's backyard, stepping in dog poop, you know, like it wasn't like, yeah, but those the, Girl Scout cookies, the, those yeah, are pretty, pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it wasn't, yeah, no, I didn't really have that. It was the woods mm-hmm. in our backyards that we would romp around as kids. Um, and you know, build forts and play in the Creek and try and cross it when the water was too high and that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, 
yeah. So then I also have like a memory in my childhood of seeing Vertical Limit, which is like classic Hollywood, you know, fact, you know, false climbing expedition. But I remember them being on a tower, the opening scene, they're on a tower in the middle of Utah. And as a kid, I was just like, what? That's a thing. Like her dad dies, but for some reason I still want to do that. Like, I, I don't know. It's like, that is so horrific, but I want to be on something like that. Um, a desert tower in the middle of nowhere. So I, I would say my early on, my motivations came from wanting to be in a place and places that were ex- accessed by rocks. So not so much like wanting to climb the hardest thing or um, wanting to do it in a certain style or whatever, but just like wanting to access those places that you could see forever on the top of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so then later on in college, my friends um, worked on at the climbing gym and ran the Mountaineering Whitewater Rafting Club, and they had a climbing trip to, I was in college in South Carolina, um, and they had a climbing trip to Crowder State Park in North Carolina, and that was the first time I climbed outside. Oh. I went with them on that, and I struggled really hard climbing granite cracks, which is still my favorite type of climbing today. And I got an award for the person that tried the hardest. Oh, so. there you go. <laughs> it wasn't good. <laughs> I struggled. Do you do trad? I do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I like, you know, all, I like all of the climbing pretty much. Um, I haven't gotten into dry tooling yet, which is like ice climbing on rocks. Um, Tell me more about that. I've never heard of uh, that. Yeah. So. Um, dry tooling? Yeah, so like using axes that you use for ice climbing yeah. picks. Yeah. Um, but you can actually use that. It, it's it's particularly a style to develop to climb for mountaineering, um, so that you can um, mix between ice climbing and snow and rock climbing, um, and so you're actually using your picks in cracks and crevices to ascend rock. Hmm. Um, and then your crampons, you usually use like, usually crampons have two points on the front, but if you're dry tooling in particular, using them with one point on the front and then you're just climbing on rocks. So for, yeah, like big winter, particularly winter mountaineering expeditions, it's a good skill to have so that if you were climbing up some ice then you could climb up rock and your huge mitts and everything like that. And, yeah. um, dry tool. Have you done it around Chattanooga? No. Yeah, I probably wouldn't. Spots? Uh, probably not for dry tooling. There are apparently ice climbing in Tennessee, um, but it's kind of actually a friend, Heath Rowland. He's um, local sales rep for a few different brands. um, Great climber as well. He's got a movie called Gone Tomorrow that's about ice climbing in Kentucky, and the idea is because you know it's kind of like here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah. So you have to find the exact perfect conditions and. Um, anymore, those conditions are being harder and harder to find thanks yeah. to climate change, but, um, they're still, I'm sure around. Um, but yeah, my ice climbing has been exclusively in Colorado and I've not done a lot of it. I'm still what I would consider like a novice ice climber. Um, I haven't led ice climbing yet where you're like putting in screws, um, or done any multi-pitch ice yet, but 
um, kind of on the list, but not so much the focus right now that I'm living in Chattanooga. Yeah. Um, so can you do it next winter? Take a week off? Yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've considered it. You know, it's just so hard cause that's our climbing season here. Yeah. <laughs> when it's like the best to climb here. That's true. But, um, I also, I if like it, big if it wall. doesn't, if it doesn't rain the last couple of yeah. years have been a little wet. It's been, it's been wet. A little wet. Yeah, totally. But, um, yeah, I still enjoy planning and going on climbing trips. Now it's kind of hard just travel, um, and going to, you know, what we call gateway communities where they could be vulnerable to spread of the coronavirus. So, um, I had a couple of plans. One was with our former SEC board president, Julie, we were going to go climb the moonlight buttress in Zion national park. Um, and we were going to do the lunar ecstasy route, which is a mixed aid and free route. So aid climbing, you're like using your gear and ladders and slings to climb. You're not like free climbing with your hands and feet. Um, and so we were going to do that one, um, out in Utah. And then I had plans to climb Mount Watkins in Yosemite national park at the end of, actually I should be leaving in a couple of days, but the park's still closed. So we're not going. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I really like big wall climbing. That's probably like one of my biggest aspirations and what I like to, um, do and I function with my climbing off of big goals. So, um, having something like going to climb Mount Watkins or going to climb El Cap or stuff like that, um, kind of sets me up to be motivated to try hard Yeah. and other times and train hard and that kind of stuff. Have you ever camped on the wall? Mm-hmm. What's that like? Awesome. <laughs> I mean like, so the first time my friend and I were practicing to go climb the nose on El Cap and we went to a local crack. I was living in Colorado at the time and we, um, just climbed one pitch and there was this big ledge there and we hauled our bag up and set up our belay ledge and drank beer on the ledge and crawled into the blade ledge at night and, um, did an angular pitch in the morning. But yeah, it's awesome. Um, probably the most uncomfortable night that I've had sleeping on the wall was our first attempt at climbing the nose. We got like halfway up and <clears throat> it took us three and a half days to get there and halfway up the wall, it took 3000 foot cliff. Um, so it's like 33 individual pitches, which a pitch is like a hundred foot rope length of a climb. And, um, we, uh, yeah, climbed the boot flake, which is just before the King swing, um, which is halfway up on the nose where there's just this huge detached flake or block and it looks like a boot. And so it's called the boot flake pitch and it's really tricky, thin aiding. So you're placing really small offset, nuts I, I know this is all probably really technical but no like, i love this okay cool. yeah, get as nerdy as you want <laughs> okay cool so you're placing yeah. little small offset nuts and you go out on a bolt ladder first so there's like bolts drilled and you just kind of like reach out and then clip it and then pull over and you're just aiding through and then you get to the bottom of the boot flake and it's like 10c kind of like big fist jam um and then you get to the top of it and it's like a ledge that's maybe eight feet long and like maybe a foot wide at its widest. And so I led that bit and it was like the end of our fourth day of climbing pretty slow because it's tricky aid. It's like what we call C2 plus. So it's just like there's uh, multiple placements that if one of those failed, the few behind would also fail. Um, So that's kind of how the difficulty of aiding is graded is by how many tenuous placements that you're 
on sequentially, just like how the difficulty of a free climb, how many tenuous holds that you're on. I'm using the word tenuous, but kind of like insecure um, before you get to something solid. Um, And so I did that. It took a long time. I get to the top of the pitch and I'm psyched. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just got through that. Sweet. And I like look up. I'm like, oh my God, we're still only halfway. How much water do we have? How much food do we have left? Whatever. And then my climbing partner, who's actually the girl I went on the road with, with the access fund, she jugs up the rope and gets to me. And I just look at her and she's like exhausted. She was like, dude, I was just falling asleep, belaying you on the Texas flake, which is Texas flake is even more set away from the wall. She had led that pitch where it's like you're chimneying. So your back's on one side, your feet and hands are on the other side. And it's completely blank and sheer for like 50 feet. Um, so she was falling asleep. We were exhausted and we just kind of have this moment of like, okay, are we going to keep on going or are we going to bail? And we were like, okay, we're going to bail. We're going to go down. We're going to sleep here tonight and we're going to bail down tomorrow. In hindsight, it would have been a lot easier just to climb the rest of it, but that's what we decided to do. Yeah. And so we, we brought a hammock with us. We brought everything, right? Our haul bag was probably twice the weight as it was um, the second time when we went and climbed it successfully. I mean, we had so much water, we had stoves, we had a hammock, we had like all this shit that we didn't need. Um, and, uh, so we hung a hammock above the boot flake and I actually have like a classic picture of the two of us, like, you know, slammed up against a wall, 1600 feet off the ground, sharing a, you know, double nest hammock. Yeah. And I remember, you know, like waking up and looking down it's just like, because you know, your depth perception is kind of a little weird at the time, but we each brought one beer mm-hmm. and we drank them Lug that night. Item. Yeah. Oh yeah laying in the hammock and just enjoying the sunset so when you're laying in the hammock do you still have your harness on yeah so what we'll usually do is take the leg slings off um so the leg loops can detach from the harness and just keep the waist belt on Mm -hmm. and then have two tethers yep um where you're attached to the wall and and on most big walls that are established like the route we were doing the nose there's bolted anchors already otherwise you would probably just like build multiple anchors using your gear yeah um so you've got kind of multiple backups so how did you hang the hammock on the wall attached it to the bolts yeah yeah just from so we just like slammed up against yeah Mm -hmm. cold was it cold against um kind of i mean we had i'm trying to remember what kind of sleeping pads we had on that trip um i think we just had like a the basic thermarest foam pad kind of within the hammock yeah it wasn't it was not comfortable but by that point like it was, it's so physical. You're so exhausted. Yeah, you basically yeah, just pass out. Is there, um, and I do you want to be against the wall or um, not against the wall? I mean, you've both slept in the same hammock. Yeah. Uh, like, is, is it more fun to be like on the outside looking down? Yeah. It, and than more sm- comfortable. Than, than smashing to yeah. the, between a rock and a person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a comfortable night. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, either way, you know, you're like head at one end, feet oh, at the other. Feet. Yeah. Okay. Your, your head foot. And, um, by that point you've been living in Brooks class cr- close proximity with this person oh, yeah, for that, four yeah. days. So like you smell the same yeah. at that point basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. I think, I think we, I think I remember us taking turns with that actually, yeah. Okay. you know, like, okay, it's time. My legs are falling asleep. Like it's time to switch. And then you would switch whose feet had to be on the inside. Yeah. Um, what would you eat for, what do you eat on something like that? Yeah, canned foods are pretty good. Um, A lot of um, 
Gosh, I remember one of my favorite meals. So we went back the next year and we climbed it in three days and got to the top. And on the top, I ate one of my favorite meals. This is going to sound gross, but it was like a corn tortilla, almond butter, and a tuna fish packet. Um, so you had like protein, you had yeah. the quick carbs, and then the fat from the um, almond butter. And I just remember it being amazingly delicious because hunger and exhaustion is just the best seasoning. So yeah, stuff like that. Um, not like you don't usually bring dehydrated meals because then you have to, water. yeah, because yeah. you have to haul all of your own water with you. Um, so usually canned meals, like people often do like raviolis and stuff like that. Um, I always tend towards like tunas and I did have an avocado fiasco once. So that's kind of a hard one to bring. Um, cause you're shoving everything into a haul bag and they can explode everywhere. So like butters, peanut butters, almond butters in those like packets and stuff like that. Um, bagels, um, you know, bagels and almond butters, hard boiled eggs. If you can do that, um, those are great and they tend to last pretty long. And how do you, fruits. how do you, um, how do you like protect a hard boiled egg from getting smashed? Um, just put them in a bag with all their hard boiled eggs. Oh yeah. Just and just kind of like stack them all in. Mashed potato yeah, bag basically. of hard boiled eggs. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, I love hard boiled eggs. That's yep. that's a really good uh it's really good when you're like rafting and you get out uh-huh. the river and you're hungry and like Oh my god, yeah. Then do you ever take a little um chili pepper or chili powder? Ooh, no, but that sounds so good. Oh, I'm usually like, like a mustard and mayonnaise squirt on top and then have a bite and then that's good too. squirt those on top. Except for the mayonnaise. Uh, oh, love it. Oh man. Do you, do you, uh, do you eat sardines? You know what? I, I don't, I, you know, I wish I liked sardines and anchovies because those are other great wall foods. They're great. And the amount of protein they have like packed inside Mm -hmm. there, um, they're little cans. They come already. You can get mustard or hot sauce ones. Yeah. I do like herring though. Okay. So I usually do the kipper snacks. Yeah. Um, and cans of those and you can get those in different seasonings, but yeah, I unfortunately can't really get over the fishy flavor, but I'll do tuna packets and salmon. Yeah. Salmon Um, packets. Yeah. Salmon packets or salmon cans. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, we would often do stuff like that and then tortillas and just kind of, you know, whatever you got, cheese, sausage. Yeah. Similar stuff that you would do, you know, if you were doing like a multi-day kayaking. Thing, where you're just trying to fit everything in your pack and not except for the water because I boat too I've done like you know boating expeditions oh let's like talk that. about that yeah have you done the Grand Canyon I have yeah I did oh, it last winter oh my goodness oh yeah walk us, a... tell us this whole story oh, yeah. that I that's a dream for me to do my friend Pete mm-hmm. he's actually doing it this summer oh nice so, yeah yeah we did a winter trip 30 days um launched January 16th and took off February 17th um, yeah, there were 14 of us, 12 women, uh, two dudes and, um, yeah, three of my good friends came with and the rest were strangers up until the trip. You and weren't, you weren't strangers after. We're not strangers after. We're still close friends to this day. Um, so yeah, it was great. I had done a handful of smaller multi-day trips. I used to guide in Colorado, um, on the Arkansas river. Not a lot. I wasn't ever a full-time guide. Um, but I lived in Colorado Springs and I trained with Fort Carson and then guided, um, individual trips kind of intermittently with Fort Carson or Peterson air force base or the Colorado. I worked at university of Colorado, Colorado Springs in their outdoor recreation program. And so we would take a few trips a summer. Um, and then just primarily a recreational boater going out with other guides and stuff like five o'clock boat club after work and going down the river. And, um, 
so yeah, so I did a few multi-day trips on the Arkansas, just kind of overnight trips. And then, um, I had done Westwater out in Utah and, um, oh, I'm totally Desolation Canyon. Um, I had done that trip once with friends and once with, once with the college, um, leading students on that. Um, so yeah, the grant had always been on my list and my time, with the access fund was coming to an end in 2018. Uh, my contract was about to end in December and the trip was going to launch in January for a month. So, um, yeah, I went, it was amazing. It was awesome. It was 30 days and it was a, a special challenge for me. I had a back injury about 10 months prior to launching. Um, so it was really challenging. Um, boating is pretty backy and particularly expedition boating where you're, you know, well hauling your dry bags on and off the boat every day or every other day and then rowing all day long. Um, and everything that kind of goes into that. So you're, you're making me sit up straight and have better posture. I, know. <laughs> Sorry. I just caught myself like, Oh, I'm slouching. I don't have a strong back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So definitely, um, for me, it was actually a big practice. Um, because I had a background of being a trip leader, um, and a crew leader and stuff like that. Um, I was kind of in a guide. I was kind of more in the position of, you know, the kind of leader that would like wake up in the morning and make coffee for everybody. And if I saw something that needed to be done, I would just do it. Um, and having a back injury really, um, taught me, you know, to practice the communication skills that I preached so much of asking for help. Um, cause I, it wasn't really my personality type probably still isn't but I've gotten better at it it's hard to ask for help yeah it is and um particularly if it's something that like I used to be able to do on my own Mm -hmm. um and if you know if the injury you're vulnerable to so um yeah but it was amazing an amazing crew of women from all over the country with just really diverse life stories and backgrounds and passions. And, um, I got to learn a lot from them, um, in, in their histories and they got to learn some from me and, um, yeah, it was amazing. It was beautiful. Um, 30 days. I also just enjoy 30 day, um, expeditions. It's my third, um, you know, extended period in the outdoors. And I think it's, really good for people to do that. It's like, you know, like 30 day behavior habit changes like, Oh, I'm going to quit smoking for 30 days or, Oh, I'm going to like do this 30 day meditation or I'm going to practice handstands for 30 days, whatever it is. Um, I think that building, being in nature, being in nature for, um, a consistent straight 30 days, it changes the way that you think and behave, um, being disconnected from technology, being disconnected from, you know, like we're going back to the wilderness, being disconnected from roads and cars, um, and kind of all of those, um, you know, modern society, you kind of get down to the roots of what really matters. Um, and so it's very refreshing. Is there, um, any bailout or emergency Mm -hmm. locations on that? Yeah, there's a halfway point where people can hike in and hike out. Um, and I think that that's kind of the la- what's that called? Phantom Canyon Ranch. Oh yeah. Yeah. You take the maybe Bright Angel Trail yes. down there mm-hmm. to get to it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So we had two people join us at that point. They hiked down. They backpacked in, and hmm. um, they weren't able for whatever reason to join for the whole trip. Yeah. Um, but they were able to hike down, and they were with us for the second half of the trip. Um, but f- I believe from there, you're like 
in the canyon. Um, and so there really aren't any hike outs, right? There's a story of John Wesley Powell during his first documented trip down the Grand um, in wooden dories. He's got one arm. They're eating rotten bacon and having all of these um, modern, what we would call modern day adventures, but at the time, like life or death, um, you know, trying to, and he, he's trying to survey the area um, when he first goes down the river. And, um, you know, it's just, catastrophe and absurdity throughout the entire trip and um at one point what's it called they they have a name for this point along the river uh separation point and um may even be the rapid may name be named after it as well separation rapid two of his crew decide that they're they can't do it anymore they're like this is just crazy so they hike out and there are different stories of what happens to them next either they just straight up die in the desert or they get ambushed by um native american tribes or they just disappear and never live to tell a story because they're embarrassed who knows Mm -hmm. nobody really knows but they do not ever surface after hiking out wow um but now it's a little different you know we brought a spot device with us we could push a button if we had to get search and rescue in there that's a big operation that you don't want to have Um, you know, that's a stress on the system that, you know, obviously nobody wants to be rescues if you don't have to. So try and be as self-sufficient as possible. And, um, yeah. Did you have any close calls or anything? Yeah. Uh, we had one rapid that a couple of boats, mine included, I got tossed out. Um, it's a house rock. There's just a huge rock in the middle of the rapid. And, um, I was set up to far center, um, and needed to be further right and was just trying with all my might, but didn't set myself upright and got kicked off the boat. Um, as I bumped up against the rock in the middle of it, boat stayed upright. I resurfaced only to see the boat upright going through the rapid without me. And then just chundered back down and researched for more long that I feel comfortable with. Um, until I finally balled up and shot out the bottom and came back up and the other gal that was in my boat kind of made eye contact, tapped the head. You okay? You good? Okay, cool. And I just booked it down the river chasing after my boat, got in my boat, looked back up river and there comes another boat upside down floating towards me. How how many people per boat? Uh, we had anywhere from two to four people would kind of move around. It was 30 days. Um, so you kind of had each boat had its boat captain that was kind of like ownership of that boat. Um, but we had five boats. Um, and so sometimes, you know, a boat would have two people and sometimes it would have up to four people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we were able to, with a lot of might and work, you know, when a boat of that's kitted out with 30 days worth of stuff is floating upside down in a river, that's a lot of stuff hanging in the thaw wag that's, um, makes it really hard to move that boat around. Um, so that was, uh, a big lesson for me you know, making mistakes. It's, it's, it's hard to recover, but it can be done. Um, and it happens. Um, so, um, yeah, everybody was fine. We were able to get the boat over to the side. We were able to flip it back over, get through the next rapid and get to camp at night and eat a good dinner and drink plenty of our beers and, um, you know, live to tell a story. So that was all good. Were you all in dry suits that, yes. time, of, that time of year? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were. Um, yeah, it's, it's cold. I mean, it, it does kind of suck because getting in and out of a dry suit every day is just like, 
Yeah. You know, but you're, you're nice happy. and cozy. You're happy. Yeah. Do you have campfires on this route? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You bring a fire pan. Um, it's required by yeah. the park service that if you're going, you have to have a fire pan. Even if you don't want to have a fire, you still have to have one. Um, okay. So, yeah. And then can you, can you burn wood that you mm-hmm. find along the way? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah, totally. So you try and find like dry wood, driftwood, wherever yeah. you can. Um, we brought some Insta logs too. Yep. So just like if we weren't able to get something started, which happened a couple of times because it snows that time of year. Oh. So there are a couple of snow and hail days. Oh, that's cool. On the river yeah. with it, like with snowflakes. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's cool until it's not. Yeah. It's cool <laughs> for me to listen to the story. Right. Yeah, but it is. It is. And I mean, we also had days where we're like hanging out naked on the beach because it's so warm out. So, yeah. you know, it's you get the whole spectrum in the winter in the canyon. Do you have to haul your poop out? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have, uh, groovers, which are named because they're ammo cans that you sit on. So they're named groovers because of the lines they leave on your butt oh, from yeah. sitting on them. Um, but you know, we bring a toilet seat with it and there's a whole system for, um, managing that. But yeah, we have one boat. We had one boat that was pretty much dedicated to hauling it all. And then do you pee in the river? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's protocol. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, definitely better to pee on the river than on the plants. Yeah. Um, because, exactly. you know, all the critters are after your salt and urine. Yeah, and like it that. doesn't rain much out there to kind of mm-hmm. wash it yeah. wash it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, who got the permit for that? Did you, who was a lucky? Yeah, my friend Brian, he had done the trip once before. So um, once you've done the trip, you qualify as a head boater. Oh, um, and each trip has to have one head boatman. Um, and so a head boatman is somebody that's, you know, done the grand before. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he had, he had participated on a trip together or participated on a trip and then invited people to come. And I invited one of my best friends who had been down the grand once before at that time she hadn't, you know, gone through raft guide training or anything like that, but she had experienced boating mm-hmm. um, and she had been on the grand. So, um, you know, I was super psyched to have Sarah along with me. Um, and then we, then I invited a couple of other people. So we were like team Colorado cause we were all from Colorado and we all like, we were at one four person tent and all slept in it together. And oh, so cool. we were toasty. We were definitely <laughs> staying warm. Did you bring good food? Yeah. Can't, can't you bring more stuff in a raft? Like yes. a couple luxury items. You, you have bring cat- so much. Yeah. I actually was in charge of, um, putting together our menu and ordering all the food. And it's a huge undertaking for 30 days for 14 people to prepare food. Um, so we were kind of somewhere in the middle of like, we were a bunch of like, you know, pretty simple people that care about good food, but not extravagant. Yeah. And extravagant tends to be the way of the river warriors, right. Of having like pork chops and steak and grilled asparagus and, you know, a bottle of Chardonnay or something. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Cause you can bring all of that on your rafts. It's, it's totally feasible. So, um, I kind of tried to strike the middle ground of, you know, having good, healthful, balanced meals, but also, you know, easy enough that it wasn't such a big production every time that we wanted to eat. So we had a lot of just oatmeal for breakfast or eggs, you know, for breakfast and whatever. Um, and then kind of just like a rotating handful of different meals for dinner, like shepherd's pie or curry or, um, yeah, a bunch of different things. Does that mean take turns that people have different days that they cook on or? Yeah, we did it kind of more of like an unstructured way of, 
um, which was kind of nice. I'd been on trips before that were very structured, like with a schedule and a rotation of like, you're on water duty on this day, you're on groover duty on this day, you're on cooking, you're on cleanup, you're on whatever. Um, and we kind of did it pretty unstructured, which not to be sexist, but I think in a group of women really works because we communicate really well. And so it was kind of like, no, I'm not feeling like cooking tonight. I'm going to go be by myself in my tent and read. And somebody would, you know, pick it up who did feel like cooking that night. And so it really, um, you know, we were able to kind of, and we encouraged each other to take care of yourself and take care of your needs and also take care of the group. And that's kind of like was the nature and the tone. So it, it worked out well. Yeah, yeah. We had some really good meals and it's, it was nice to have different people cooking, you know, cause you could get different flavors out of the same ingredients based on who's cooking. Like one night I put margarita juice in the rice that we were cooking for. Um, and my friend, instead of having tacos, she decided to make enchiladas. Um, same, all the same ingredients. Right. Um, I don't really remember it that well though. I remember it tasted good, but it, it was tequila night. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Did you take any beer with you? Is that, yeah. Is that too heavy? No, you can take no, it. No, yeah. yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Whatever you want. Oh, yeah. Yeah, beer. Um, boozy water, um, which is like uh, Odell's version of White Claw or whatever. Oh. You know, just like hard seltzer. Yeah. Um, I, I personally like Corona, so lots yeah. of that. And Coors Light. And um, Case the Rockies. bags of, uh, what is it? Fireball. Bags you of can fireball? Get fireball and, and like, you know, in a bag? bags of wine. You can get fireball in boxes. I did not know bags. that. Yeah. So That's kind of, I mean, like you, you typically want to avoid bringing glass yeah. on the river. So, um, people do it. It's probably, you know, it, it, it really depends. Sometimes you wrap the glass in duct tape so that if it does break, oh, you don't yep. have glass everywhere. Mm-hmm. I'll pop your boats, you know? Is there um, any trash down there? There is. Yeah, there is. We we did some trash cleanups actually along our way and just kind of hold it out. But there's definitely spots where you can see when the water gets high that, you know, trash that's um, been pulled down through the drainages has deposited. I wouldn't say that the campgrounds and the people places where boaters go are not trashed. Right. We pick up after ourselves. It's an ethic of yeah. um, boating. You know what I mean? You have like the tarps on the ground for the kitchen to you know, pick up the food scraps and then you shake that out and funnel it all in the trash can before you leave. So, you know, pretty strong ethic for cleaning up and not leaving a trace in the boating community, but there's definitely trash that comes in just from the yeah, drainage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, man, that sounds really fun. It was, was there any cell phone service the whole way? No, we had a sat phone. Yeah. But, um, but no one's like getting emails push through their smartphone or text or anything like that no i got a call out at the put in at the very top um i got a call out there um and then not yeah no Mm -mm. yeah no cell phones were just for taking pictures that sounds like a great trip Mm -hmm. yeah it was awesome it was really cool do you have another one lined up you know a friend invited me to go this winter and i had to pass um for going again this winter um on the grand so i don't currently right now um but uh i'm sure i will i'm sure i will again yeah my i think my my friend sarah who came on the trip with me like we'll we'll probably pull a permit at some point cool Mm -hmm. see you again well uh do you have anything to add that you want to tell anybody or plug or anything um yeah take that survey take the survey ridge survey 
and um, you can find it on the SEC page. Okay. And um, yeah, just like a final plug for supporting nonprofits in your region, whatever you're into, if you're into climbing, biking, boating, anything like that, like there are people that are working to protect those opportunities, whether you see it or not. Um, there's organizations that are behind the scenes having those conversations and making that all happen. So if you find something that you like to do, find the people that are fighting for it and support them. That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>